You uh, probably recall a story that uh, Luke tells, a true incident that he records in Acts 19 about um, an occasion on which Paul preached in Ephesus. And uh, in Ephesus, there were a lot of people that were into uh, various types of occult activity. And uh, Paul preached with such power that these uh, these people were convicted of their sin and repented. And they, uh, they brought all of their magic uh, paraphernalia, all the junk that was used in their, their uh, magic practices to Paul. And they built a big uh, bonfire out of them and burned them all. That was in Ephesus. And uh, we had an analogous situation just this last uh, just this last week. I preached from Paul's uh, teaching to the church in Ephesus and uh, other places, as we know, from chapter two about sexism. And a friend of mine uh, get, brought this package by the by my office. It says uh, Roper enclosed is one slightly used male chauvinist pig tie. You shot me, Cindy, with a rubber gun, and I can't wear it in good conscience. So uh, here is this uh, one slightly used uh, male chauvinist pig tie, beautiful blue tie with little pink pigs all over it. <laughs> so I thought I'd bring that as an evidence of real conviction. God was uh, really at work. I told Carolyn I thought next week I would uh, preach on the sin of color television sets or something. <laughs> There was a story making the rounds here a few years ago about a little boy that went into a pet shop. And he says, uh, Mr., do you have any Boyd seed? And uh, the proprietor says, uh, well, what do you want? And the little boy said, Boyd seed. He said, look, uh, up here in Idaho, we pronounce it bird. Maybe in Brooklyn you say Boyd, but in Idaho it's bird. Now, you, you asked for it properly, little boy. He says, got any Boyd seed? He says, no, 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 you, look, you go home and you practice, and you come back tomorrow, and uh, when you can say that word properly, then I'll sell you some bird seeds. The next day, the little boy comes comes back to the pet shop, and he says, hey, mister, you got any Boyd seed? And the man says, look, son, I told you, I won't sell you any bird seed until you pronounce that word properly. So this went on for days and days. Finally, the little boy comes into the pet shop, and he says, hey, mister, you want to buy a dead Boyd? <laughs> And uh, it, it struck me when I heard the story that that's so much like us in the church that we tend to get preoccupied with trivia and, and forget the purpose for which we've been brought into being. Uh, we need to stay on task, as they say. And uh, it, I find that the book of Ephesians does that for us. It reminds us again and again the uh, proper purpose of the church, the reason for which we've been brought into existence. Uh, as a case in point, turn to chapter 3 of Ephesians, verses 1 through 13. Ephesians 3, 1 through 13. For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. And at this point, Paul lost his train of thought. He was getting ready to dictate uh, the next line to his scribe, which would have been, I entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. The argument picks up again in chapter 4, verse 1. He's been talking about their unique call into one, uh, into one body. In chapter 2, he teaches us that there is only one humanity, only one human race centered around 
our Lord Jesus and all the other ethnic, racial, uh, sexual distinctions have been uh, obliterated. We're now one people. And, and he was going to appeal to them to walk that way. You know, let's get about the business of, of living out our unity in, in practical ways in front of the world. And he started thinking about being a prisoner on behalf of the Gentiles, and he actually lost his train of thought. And his scribe was waiting with his, with his quill poised over the papyrus, waiting for the next word, and Paul mused for a few minutes and then sort of came back uh, down to earth, and, and he started talking about uh, what it mind, his mind had wandered to. Uh, and what we have, really, in the rest of this chapter, from verse 2 all the way to the end, is a, is a big parenthesis. And when I say he lost his train of thought, I, I don't mean in any way to deny the, the high view of inspiration that we have. But all I'm saying is that God used natural mental processes, the vocabulary of these men, the, the way they thought, the, the idioms they used, in order to convey truth. And this, this derailment for a moment here includes some things that are not trivial. They're important for us as a church to know, and that's why they're contained here in this, in this book. The the uh, the discussion from verse two on to the end of the chapter revolves around two words: the word mystery and ministry. And that's the outline that we'll follow. He talks about the mystery in verses two through six, and his mystery in verses seven through thirteen. And then he prays that they would apprehend or comprehend, come to know, come to realize, come to live on the basis of these truths. Verse 2, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace which was given to me for you. You see, he was thinking about his imprisonment, and then it reminded them he was in prison because of the Gentiles. He'd gone to the Gentiles to preach. He'd gone back to Jerusalem, uh, was uh, persona non grata in Jerusalem because he'd been preaching to Gentiles, was beaten, mobbed, almost lost his life, placed into prison, shipped to Rome, and now he's in house arrest, all because of his of his preachment to the Gentiles. He says, you've heard of the stewardship, the commission, the assignment that I was given by God's grace to me for you, that by revelation there was made known unto me the mystery as I wrote before in brief. And by referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ or Messiah, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men as or to the extent that it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. To be specific, the Gentiles are fellow heirs with Israel and fellow members of that body and fellow partakers with Israel of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. There are a number of observations that uh, we can make about this, uh, this paragraph. The first is uh, that Paul describes this insight into the good news as a mystery. Now, uh, unless we understand what Paul is talking about, we're inclined to misunderstand. A mystery is not something mysterious. It's not something that's cloaked and concealed and, and obscure. Quite the opposite. It's something that's revealed. But it's something that can only be revealed by, by divine revelation. In fact, Paul says that. It was by revelation that it was made known to me. It's only as God made known what was in his mind to Paul's mind, in the words that the Holy Spirit chose and then Paul inscripturated those words. He wrote them down on that piece of papyrus through his scribe by means of the Holy Spirit that we could know the secret. A mystery 
is a divine secret, not something that's mysterious and strange and odd and spooky and weird, the way we use that term. Uh, when I was a kid, we, we used to, on Friday evenings, uh, I think it was Friday, either Friday or Sunday evenings, we would gather as a family around the, the radio. We had one of these uh, Philco radios that looked like a beehive, had a wooden case on it. Some of you remember what those looked like. I always thought it looked like a clown's face because the speaker looked like the eyes and had a little knob for the dial, and that was the nose. And underneath was a little square uh, orange opening for the dial, the numbers, and it always looked like a clown's face to me. And we used to sit at, uh, right at, in front of that radio and listen to I Love a Mystery and Inner Sanctum and uh, the Green Hornet and all these great, uh, great stories. I, I've, I've long believed that, uh, that kids who grew up in the TV era have really been deprived because the visual images that we had from listening to those things on the radio are ever so much better than anything you could see on a, on a screen. I can still see that. That room, you know, with the squeaky door, you know, it, it, was, it was, that was mystery. But that's not what Paul is talking about here. He's not talking about something mysterious and strange. He's talking about something that's absolutely clear to us, but it's something we could not know unless God revealed. It's a, it's a secret, a divine secret that God has revealed to us. That's what a mystery is. Now, the second thing that Paul says in this paragraph is that it was... That it's something that he had written about before. So it was something that uh, they were aware of. Third, he says you you could refer to it. And when you read it, you'll understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. It was uh, they had some literature in their hands that would inform them about this mystery. And uh, fourthly, he says it was something which was not known to other generations to the extent that it has now been revealed to the apostles. by other generations, he means the generation that read the Old Testament. The, the mystery of which he speaks is not something revealed fully in the Old Testament. It's there. There's a glimmer of it there, an indication of it there. But it's not fully revealed until you get to the New Testament. And the, the whole thing then is revealed to the New Testament apostles and prophets. It wasn't solely Paul's province. It, it belonged to all of the New Testament writers. So you, we could expect to find it throughout, throughout Scripture. Well, what is it? What is the secret that God whispered to Paul and he he wrote to us? Well, it's uh, spelled out in verse 6. To be specific, the Gentiles are fellow heirs with Israel and fellow members of the body, that is, the community of Israel, and fellow partakers of the promise, the great promise that the seed would come and through the sea, the whole world would be blessed. In Christ Jesus, through the gospel. What's well, everything he talked about in chapter 2? That's the mystery. It's, it's the story of redemption. It's the, it's the story of Christ's coming and his death, burial and resurrection. And, and all, the, uh, all that, was, uh, that came as a result of those redemptive acts by which the Gentiles were included in. Those who were on the outside, who were isolated, who were alone, who were shut off from God, who had no access to him. Uh, Paul says, cheer up, you Gentiles. You've, you've been made kosher. You, you, you've been brought in. You're acceptable. And, and what's more, and, and this was something that was not revealed in the Old Testament, it's not that you Gentiles are added like an appendage onto Israel. You are Israel. You're a part of the people of God. You've been included in this, uh, 
this community of faith that goes all the way back to Abraham and, and, and ultimately all the way back to Adam and the promise that was given to her. You're part of this historic stream, people that, that know God and have access to him. Now, that's, what the, that's the mystery. That's the secret that they didn't know in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, you have a, the, the picture of the Gentiles uh, streaming to Jerusalem like a great river. And it's there that, that they find access to God. But uh, the mystery, the secret, is that you don't have to go to Jerusalem anymore to worship. You're as much a part of Israel as, as old Israel. You're a new Israel, a new community, a new people. The human race now uh, is, is, is made one race by, by Christ. In Christ, you're united with him. Now, that's the thing of which Paul says in verse 7, he was made a minister. The content of his ministry is the good news, the big news, that uh, the whole world had been united into one race in Christ. His ministry then is described in verses 7 and following, of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me. You'll notice that the mystery was given as a result of God's grace. It was not, uh, it was not because Paul was worthy of it. It was not because he was particularly intelligent or insightful. It was a revelation given to him purely out of God's grace. And uh, the ministry, likewise, he says, is given to me according to the working of his power, to me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given. Uh, this phrase, very least of all the saints, is an interesting one because Paul does something that is grammatically impossible. At least it's not, it wasn't acceptable, but he was trying to make a, make a point, and so he, uh, he actually does something that grammatically would, would not be uh, feasible. Uh, in Greek, just as in English, there are three degrees of comparison. There's the absolute degree. And there is the comparative degree, and in the superlative degree, we have those same, we have that same phenomenon in English grammar. I, you know, I can say I have little hair. That's the absolute uh, uh, degree. I could say I have less hair. That's comparative than some of you. And I could say I have uh, the least hair of all. And that's the absolute, the uh, superlative degree. And uh, that's the sort of thing that that the Greeks did as well. Here, Paul takes the superlative degree, least, and he adds on to it the comparative degree. If we were going to translate it uh, exactly, it would be leaster, which uh, is, doesn't make a lot of sense in, in English or in Greek. So, but Paul does it anyway, because the point he's trying to make is that I'm the very, very, very least of all the saints. And the odd thing about the Apostle Paul is that though he had this view of himself, he, he, he was very audacious in his faith. He, he, he was willing to take on the entire Roman Empire. He could stand before Roman emperors and, and kings and, and judges and governors and proclaim the gospel with courage. He wasn't intimidated. He was, he was a man of great strength and courage, and yet he thought of himself as the least of all the saints. And, and, it, and it's that balance, I think, that we need to maintain. We begin with poverty of spirit. That's where Jesus said where to begin in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, those who don't think very highly of themselves, those who realize they don't have it made and can't make it and don't have what it takes to have an influence on the world. And then you realize that God has given you this great mystery, the, the, the content of the gospel to be delivered, and he's given all of us a ministry, as we'll see in chapter 4. Everybody has a place in the body of Christ, and, and therefore we can never look at ourselves and say, well, I'm the least of all the saints, I can't do anything. 
we can look at ourselves and say, well, I may be the least, leaster of all the saints, but by God's grace, I can be what God's called me to be, and I don't need to be fearful or fretful or anxious or intimidated or feel inadequate. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And that, that's the balance that characterized our Lord, his gracious, humble spirit, his unwillingness to put himself forward, always try to get credit for things, always want people to praise him and appreciate him. And he, he didn't do that. But yet he was bold and confrontive. He wasn't afraid. That's the balance that we need to, to maintain. I heard Ray Steadman say once, there, there, there are many reasons to uh, say no to a ministry opportunity. You may not have time or it may conflict with something else that you're doing. Or maybe you have another priority that, that you have to maintain. But don't ever say no to a ministry opportunity because you feel inadequate. That's never a proper reason. We are inadequate, let's face it. But uh, by God's grace, there is given to us what is given to the Apostle Paul, this great mystery, the content of the gospel, which we discern from Scripture, and a ministry for every one of us. Now, Paul goes on in Ephesians to describe uh, his ministry as one of preaching to Gentiles the unfathomable, the inestimable, the infinite riches of Christ, and to bring to light what is the, administra- the administration or the way of doing things which, is, which this mystery entails. To proclaim the truth and to make it plain is what he's saying. He wants to make it absolutely clear that the Gentiles have been included in. This mystery which he says for ages has been hidden in God who created all things in order that, in order that, that phrase in Greek, just as it is in English, indicates purpose. This is the purpose for which Paul was given the ministry and uh, uh, given this mystery. And this is the purpose for which we gather as a body. This is why the Gentiles were called in. This is why the church was formed. This is the purpose for being a church. This is why we're together. There's no other reason. I, I, I lo- at pastor's conferences, one of the things I like to do is ask young pastors, what, what, what's the purpose of the church? What are we in this thing for? And uh, sometimes you get some strange answers. Sometimes people have not even thought it through. And though they would never say it, it's too crass. You know, what it amounts to is the purpose of the church is to build buildings and run Sunday schools and, and to have programs and, and, uh, to, and to produce choirs and and those sorts of things, it's not the purpose of the church. Those things may be, may be important. They may contribute to the ultimate purpose of the church, but that's not the purpose of the church. That's not the purpose for which all other purposes exist. Or sometimes people will say, well, the, the purpose of the church is to edify the saints, build up the saints, and evangelize non-Christians. And that's true. That's so. But Paul says something here that you would not guess at if you had a thousand guesses every day for a thousand years. There is no way that any of us would know that the church exists for this purpose as well as others unless it was revealed to us. This is one of those secrets, one of those lost secrets, which we would not know apart from Revelation. Now, now understand this. Get this. Verse 10. Why did Paul preach to the Gentiles? Why did he want to make it plain to them that they had been included in? Why did he want to plant churches throughout the Roman Empire? So that 
The manifold wisdom of God, the, the word manifold means many-sided, many-faceted wisdom, all aspects, all sides of the, of the wisdom of God might be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. This wasn't an afterthought from the very beginning. He planned it this way. This is the purpose of the church, to make known to principalities and powers the many-faceted uh, aspect of the wisdom of God. That's why the church exists. Now we ask ourselves, what in the world is Paul talking about? Who are these principalities in power? How do you go about doing this? Some of you may have heard the uh, uh, term liberation theology, which is uh, it's a, a, a very radical approach to uh, biblical truth. It developed in, in Central America and in South America largely from uh, uh, Jesuit theologians living and working with oppressed people in those areas. And uh, they take their point of view largely from this verse, that the function of the church is to redeem political, social, uh, economic structures, that the church needs to get into these political structures and overthrow them and build a more Christian framework for society. Um, uh, there are right now, as you may know, a, a number of ex-Jesuit priests and other uh, Protestant Christians who are aligned with the Contras in, in Nicaragua against the uh, Sandinistas who believe that what they're doing is biblical, even though it's violent, because they could, by revolt, overthrow the political systems that exist and develop a system, a political system, that's much more Christian. Now, that's not what Paul is talking about here. And we could talk about whether that approach is biblical or not for myself. I don't think it is. But even if it were, that's not what Paul is talking about here. Because this term, principalities and powers, is never used by the Apostle Paul. Never, anywhere in any of his writings, to refer to political structures. In every place, it refers to angelic beings, cosmic authorities, angels uh, in, the, in the spiritual realm. So that raises an even bigger question. You know, if he's talking about redeeming social structures, well, that, that's one thing. I, I may not agree with it, but at least I can see what he's talking about here. But when he talks about displaying all the facets of God, God's wisdom to angels, what, what is he talking about? Well, there are two possibilities. He could be talking about good angels, or he could be talking about evil angels. If he's talking about good angels, he's saying what I think is taught elsewhere in Scripture, that the angels are learning from us about God's plan of redemption. They sort of peek over our shoulders and watch what we do, and, and uh, the, the whole process is informative. They learn more about God as a result of, of watching us. But for myself, I don't think that's what Paul is talking about here. Because in the book of Ephesians, whenever he talks about principalities or powers, in every case, he's referring to evil evil angels, fallen angels. It's true in chapter 1, where he says in the cross he triumphed over them. It's true in chapter 6, when he says that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, uh, the evil schemer behind the scenes, demonic forces, and so forth. So that I really believe that what Paul is talking about is that in, a, that in, a, in some sense that you and I may not be a, totally aware of, we are an audiovisual aid to demonic powers of God's manifold wisdom. That these 
these cosmic forces are put in their place, they are dealt a lethal blow when the church functions as the church ought to function, as a unit, when we love each other, when we care for each other, when we minister to each other, when we serve each other, when we put away our resentment and our bitterness and our unforgiving spirit, and we stop gossiping about one another, and you know we do things the biblical way when we have something against a brother or sister instead of uh, tattling on them to somebody else, or calling a prayer meeting to pray for them so that everybody knows how unjust people have been to us. We go to the brother. Or the sister, as Jesus said, and we, tr- we try to win them back, gain their, their uh, forgiveness if we've wronged them, and set things right. See? Or if somebody comes to us and, and they're, they're gossiping about someone else, we say, you know, wait a minute, wait a minute, we, we don't want to do this, we don't need to do this. The, the way is not to talk about a brother or sister, let's go to them and see if this is true. Or if you've been slighted because you've been a faithful Sunday school teacher for 20 years and nobody notices, nobody seems to care, nobody sends you thank you notes, and the tendency is to be resentful and get angry and, 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 and you refuse to do that, and you see that your service is for God and Him alone, and you hope that God will correct the attitude of the people who uh, forget to give thanks, that's another thing. But, but the point is we don't get resentful and bitter and we don't permit these things to divide us as a body. Whenever we do that... Satan is dealt a lethal blow. There is a great victory that's wrought in in heavenly places. And the church can march on militant and victorious wherever it goes. Things may have to happen here on earth as well as in the spiritual realm because Satan is thwarted and frustrated and defeated at every turn. So the church can begin to have an impact on the world around us. That's why Jesus said, "The, the world will know that you have the real thing when you love one another. That's how they know that, that, that God's wisdom is at work. Uh, uh, Moses said to Israel, when you get into, into the land of Canaan and they observe the way you live, they'll say, what nation has a God this wise to give these kinds of laws? See, the whole world would be impressed by the way Israel lived. And the same is true of us. The whole world will be impressed. Because Satan, in his attempts to frustrate the activities of the church and their, and their unity, is, uh, is thwarted and defeated. Now, David mentioned earlier the uh, story of Job. And for myself, I think that's so another place in Scripture where the same idea is taught. Let me remind you of what happened there. Uh, I don't know who wrote Job. No one does. I don't know when it was written. It's a, very, it's a very old book, probably older than any other book in the Old Testament. I don't even know where Job lived. He lived in the land of Uz, but nobody knows where that is. Probably in Edom, somewhere east of, of Israel. But as the story goes, Job was the most godly man on the face of the earth. He, he loved God. And uh, his, his life demonstrated it. He cared for his children. He was the high priest of his family. And uh, he, he is, so there's no doubt in our mind, the fact that he was a righteous man is underscored over and over again. A day came when the sons of God, it's an idiom for angels, appeared before, before God's throne. God says to Satan, what are you up to these days? Satan says, I've been walking to and, and fro, back and forth through the earth. That's an idiom. For uh, what we would say today, I, in our idiom, it would be, I've been hassling people. 
It doesn't mean he was walking around observing what's going on. He, he was harassing the human race. God says to Satan, have, have you tried Job? Do you realize what, what God did? He's not at all afraid of what Satan is going to do to Job. There are two equal and opposite errors, I think, that we Christians make. One is to uh, believe that demons don't exist, or at least be very indifferent to their existence. That's wrong. Our Lord took demons very seriously. And I can't have any other, I can't have a different worldview than that of my Lord. If he believed in demons and he took them seriously, then I need to take them seriously. But the opposite error is to take them too seriously and be afraid of them, just be intimidated and fearful of, of demons. Preoccupied with them, obsessed by them. That's that's the opposite error. We don't need to fear them. Our Lord didn't fear them. God doesn't fear what Satan's going to do to to Job. Jesus said to Peter, Satan wants to sift you like wheat. He doesn't say, I'm not going to let him. He says, I've prayed for you that your faith won't fail. God knew that Peter would make it through that difficult time. And God knew that Job would. God says, have you taken your turn at giving my servant Job a hard time? He's one of the godliest men around. Try him on for size. See what he does. Satan says, well, sure, he loves you. Big deal. Who wouldn't if, if he didn't have everything going his way? He has a loving wife. He has all these beautiful children. He has a beautiful home. He has money in the bank, he has crops in the field, he has sheep on the hillside, he's got everything. He's got his health. You've put a hedge around him, but uh, you uh, let me defoliate the hedge and uh, get at uh, get at Job, and we'll see what he does. He'll curse you to your face. And God says, all right, we'll see. And you know what happened? One, one thing, one dreadful thing after another happened to Job. And in the end, Job is, is sitting in his ash heap. And he says, naked I came out of the womb, and naked I'm going back. Blessed is the name of the Lord. Doesn't curse God. Satan comes back. God says, look, look what you did. You moved me against my servant Job. He takes responsibility for all these terrible things that have happened. Though it's Satan himself who is the agent doing it. God permits it. He says, have you seen my servant Job? Satan says, well, sure, you haven't let me touch his skin yet. Skin for skin. A man will give up his life for his life. You can count on that. It's a very uh, powerful argument. God says, all right. He moves the hedge in a little bit closer. And uh, Satan afflicts David or Job with some sort of uh, skin disease. And, and it's very uh, uh, loathsome to look at and very uncomfortable for Job. And he sits in his ash heap and he scrapes his arms with a piece of, of, of pottery, a shard. And he, he says... God gave me prosperity. Didn't he have the right to give me adversity? Blessed be the name of the Lord. And he didn't curse God in his heart or with his lips. And Satan skulked off like the, uh, like the villain in a Western melodrama saying curses foiled again. Because that's what God predicted when he gave the promise to, uh, to Eve. He said that, that you know, that, Satan's going to be defeated. He's a defeated foe. He's going to be crushed. His head will be crushed. And that's what we do by the, by the power of, of our indwelling Christ. 
And great victories are gained, not, not just here in the realm that we see, but in this cosmic realm that we don't see, where the spiritual battle is, is going on. When, 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 Satan, when God permits Satan to afflict you, he brings the hedge in, and, and Satan takes away your, your money in the bank. He takes away your health. He takes away uh, your children. And, and these, these angelic beings are watching. What will Sue do? What will Bob do? What will David do? What will John do? Will they curse God? Will they thumb their nose at God? Will they turn their back on Him and walk out? Will they gossip? Will they rebel? Will they be resentful? Will they be unforgiving? Will they be fretful, anxious, fearful? What will happen? And everyone watches to see what we do. And when by God's grace we walk in obedience, then then a lethal blow is dealt to Satan. And the church marches on. That's what Jesus meant when he said the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. That's why it's so serious. That's why we need to take this so seriously. We're not playing for nickels and gains. It's a great cosmic conflict in which we're engaged. And when we win, God wins in heavenly places. Now, Paul concludes in verses 12 and 13 with these words. In whom he says, that is, in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confidence and confident access through him, Therefore, I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are your glory. He closes where he begins. He began by referring to himself as a prisoner of Christ Jesus for your sake. In verse 13, he describes himself as enduring tribulation on their behalf. For these tribulations, he says, are your glory. Paul frequently links together the idea of suffering and glory. He says uh, if in one place, if we suffer with Christ will be glorified with him. But here he links his suffering with their glory. He's willing to be imprisoned, to have his own freedom limited, in order for the Gentiles to hear the gospel and uh, to be unified around Christ and then begin to live out that, that unity in practical ways in the world. He'll, he'll put up with anything to see the church come into her own. See? He'll pay any price if the church is glorified. And, and the question I have to ask myself and you is this. Are we? Are we willing to pay any price to preserve the unity that God has created in this body, even though it may cost us dearly? Are we willing? Christ was willing to give up his life for the sake of the church. Paul says to this to the elders of this particular church, as well as others. In Acts 20, God gave up his blood for the, for the church. That's how precious the church is to him. Is it precious to us? Are we willing to suffer anything, any cost, in order to see the unity of this body preserved? We can. By God's grace, we can. Let's pray. <clears throat> Forgive us, Lord, for our... Our way of of, uh, of looking at uh, at the church, our limited vision, seeing it not as an organization through which you uh, uh, you're dealing death blows to Satan, but merely as a human organization. Help us to see it as you see it, as the uh, 
as a, as a great power in the universe, having great authority and great significance and great value. Help us to value it as you do, to place upon it the same, uh, the same worth that led you to give up your life for it and cause the Apostle Paul to endure all things for the sake of the church. Help us, Lord, to, to put aside our petty self-interest, the little things that preoccupy us, the little hurts and grievances that we brood over and which cause us to divide from one another, and, and the little uh, regional and cultural differences that we think are so great and keep us from accepting and loving those that are not quite like us or not quite our kind. And help us to see that, that, that because we're identified with you, we're identified with one another, we are members one of another. Help us in humility to set aside our own self-image, our own self-interest, and serve the needs of those around us. We ask that in confidence because we know that's your will. We ask in Jesus' name, Amen. Now we'll ask the ushers to come forward, and we want to take the the few minutes that remain to share together our our Lord's table. Be humble and gentle and non-defensive and put away your resentment and love each other and start working together as a body, using your gifts to serve one another. It's almost like shooting a sweet pea out of a 90-millimeter cannon. You know, you expect some uh, mighty revelation of the miraculous, and what he says is, now look, just go out and, and walk through the world the way our Lord Jesus did. The Lord had the, the uncanny knack of being able to live in the world and not be put off by the world, nor were people particularly put off by him. They were condemned by his, his righteousness, but they were never put off by his self-righteousness. He could live in a world where people swore and told dirty jokes and off-color <coughs> stories and, and uh, were less than ethical in their business, and yet he was perfectly at ease in that setting and that's what Paul is preparing us for in chapters 4 through 6 it's a way to live in the world and have an impact upon those around us it, and it has to do with our walk and it, and it has to do with, with these basic things like being tender and loving and forgiving and kind and using your gifts and he says in verse 17 again don't walk like the Gentiles but walk in newness of, of life which entails, in verse 25, telling the truth, stop fibbing to each other, and, and don't uh, be resentful, be angry, and yet don't sin. Sometimes you, it's right to be angry. We ought to be angry at certain, uh, certain things that, that are going on around us and things that people are doing to others. There is such a thing as righteous indignation. We ought to be morally outraged at times. But he says, don't let the sun go on your wrath. In other words, a... Uh, an anger that, that turns into resentment and bitterness is wrong, needs to be put away. Don't steal anymore, but, but rather work hard so you can share. And uh, verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander and gossip and those sorts of things be put away and be kind, tender-hearted, forgiving. And then in, verses, in chapter 5, verses 1 through 14, a word about sexual Morality says walk in love, but, but I'm talking about a different kind of love than you're going to pick up from, from the world. Walk as children of light. 
And then in verse 15, walk as wise men and women, get, get smart, learn how to, to live in the midst of society, live out your identification with Christ right where it matters, in your home first, wives being subject to your husbands. Verse 25, husbands loving your wives. Chapter 6, children obeying your parents. 6-4, fathers instructing your children. 6-5, slaves being obedient to those who are your masters, that is, those of you that are employees being subject to your employers. I've lost track of the men who have said to me, oh, that stuff works all right in the church, but it doesn't work out here in the world. In the, in the real world, where it's rough, you have to use a different approach to that sort of thing. Paul says, no, that's exactly where it works. If it doesn't work there, it doesn't work at all. If it doesn't work in your home, in terms of your relationship with your spouse or your children or your parents or your employer or your employees or your union or, or whatever, you know, let's just let's forget the whole thing. Shove the Bible, raffle off our churches to General Motors or something, and then let's get down to the business of just living life uh, in the real world. But Paul says we can learn how to live wisely in this world just, just as our Lord did and have an impact upon it. And finally in verse 10, he says, Do so even though all hell breaks loose around you. That's literally what he says in 10 and following. We have an enemy who's out to get us. And when we start to live in Christ, in Boise, we're going we're gonna to be fiercely attacked by principalities and powers in heavenly places. You know, Satan doesn't care if we go to church. He doesn't care if you read the Bible. He doesn't even care if you believe the Bible is inspired. He doesn't mind if you teach a Sunday school class or serve on a committee or even share your faith. But when you get down to the business of obeying Christ in the rough and tumble of the, of, the, of the world, the real world that you live in, then we're all going to experience the worst kind of satanic opposition. All hell will literally break loose. So what do we do? Well, he tells us how and how to put on the armor and how to do battle and how to rise above principalities as our Lord did when he was exalted above principalities and powers and given a place of authority in, in heavenly places. It's a can-do situation. We don't need to be intimidated and dominated by the world around us. The, the, the word that comes through to me in, in, the, in the book of Ephesians, and we'll refer to it time and again, is, is that of walking. I love that, that analogy of walking because it's so apt. You know, here's the wealth that's ours in Christ, and he says, now go out and walk it. Well, one thing I've learned about watching three of my children learn how to walk is that, that you don't learn to walk immediately. And none of our kids leaped out of the crib and started doing wind sprints down the hall. It, it, they had to learn, and they had to fall on their nose time and time again in other parts of their anatomy. That's just part of the, that's part of the process of learning to walk. You don't walk immediately. It takes time to learn. And it's painful, and you fall down. But what, what do you do when your kids fall down? You know, do you, do you rebuke them? Come on, kid, get up and walk. Do you reject them? No. That's part of the process. Failure is part of the process in learning to walk. The other thing that I've noticed in raising our, our children is that it really is a family project. Everybody gets excited 
when somebody takes a first step. You know, grandmother and the rest of the kids, they get all excited and they cheer and they, they yell and they holler when the child begins to walk and, and when he falls down, they pick him up and get him. You know, it, it's, a, it's, a, uh, it's exciting to, to teach somebody how to walk. And I would say the same thing is true of us as, as a body. We need to learn how to walk, and it's a painful process, and we're going to fail a lot. All of us will. I'll fail, and you'll fail. When we get serious about the business of living out our wealth in Christ out in, in, the, in the city, out there where it, where it really matters, we'll fail, but that's all right. What God looks for is progress. And secondly, we need one another. We need the encouragement and the help that comes from a body of believers who are all committed to helping one another walk. And that's why we want to study the book of Ephesians. We think that this book will teach us to do that in a way, perhaps, that no other book at this time in our life will teach us. Now, we want to share together this morning the, uh, the Lord's table. And we'll ask the men to come forward and use this time as a time of renewal of our commitment to one another, to help one another learn to live out what we have in Christ in the world. Let's pray as as the men come forward. And would you take a few moments to search your own heart and to commit yourself to the process of learning to walk and help others to walk. Lord, guide our thoughts as we gather around this table. Remind us of your death and all the other facts of our salvation with which we are identified because we've been placed there by your Spirit. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.